Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to another Monday morning edition of Inside the Firm. I'm your host, Alex Gore. I'm here with Bill Pedersen, or William, if you're going to be official, of KPS, uh, KPF, Cone, Pedersen, and Fox, if I said that correctly. Uh, Bill, welcome uh, to the firm. Thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so uh, there's a bunch to talk about. KP, uh, KPF is a known institution, at least, you know, it's on the lines of SOM, all those big firms. So it's, it's an honor to, to have you here. And skyscrapers are always a, a, a interesting topic with architects because I feel like when you're a kid, you think, you know, you're going to design skyscrapers and just the amount of people that actually design skyscrapers is way less in reality than, than what you think. So to have you here is great. Um, and why we're going to talk on this is that you have a new book coming out, Gesture and Response, 25 Buildings um, of Yourself and KPF Architects. Um, but first, going back, I saw that you graduated from the U of M, and I'm from Minnesota. Are you? Where are you from? Where were you born? Well, I was born in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I, I went to a little school, St. Paul Academy, Yep. And then I went to, went to the University of Minnesota. I went to the University of Minnesota primarily to play hockey. Because uh, it was, ever since I was uh, eight years old, it was my dream to play hockey for the University of Minnesota. And yep. I, I succeeded. That is awesome. So I'm from Rochester, Minnesota. Um, and uh, so during- my, wife, my, former, my, my, my late wife was, was from Rochester. Oh, awesome. So you, you know the place. Um, and you know, in high school, you go visit, you go to the convention center and all the universities are there. And I was talking to the U of M and I said, Hey, this is great. Um, I'm just looking at other places too. Uh, and you know, I was young and dumb, um, because I don't know if I'm going to go to the U of M and they, and they literally said, Oh, North Dakota state has a good program. You should go check them out. They're right over there. And I did. (laughs) So (laughs) that's where I went. Um, but after the U of M, you went to MIT. Um, and what was, how, how did you start out in firms after MIT and what was that journey life getting to be one of the founding partners of, of KPF? Well, that's, that's a long story, Alex. I'll, hey, we got time. Yeah, I'll try to, I'll try to abbreviate it, but as I, and I told you, uh, my primary focus on going to the university of Minnesota was to play hockey. Yep. And I, I, I achieved that objective. I played in the 1958, 57-58 team with Herb Brooks and Johnny Mariucci as coach. Uh, Herb Brooks later went on to be the coach of the Miracle on Ice in 1980. And uh, so it was an illustrious team. In addition to Herb Brooks, we had Jack McCartan, who was the goalie in the 1960 a team that beat the Russians in Squaw Valley and won the gold medal. So uh, it, it was a it was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, and playing hockey for Minnesota was very important for me. But I also, at the same time, enrolled in the School of Architecture in the Institute of Technology. Why architecture? And, because architecture is hard, 
And it's, it has to be super hard if you're doing a sport too. Well, it's very time, time intensive, of course. Everybody knows that. Uh, my, my grandfather uh, was a builder and a designer. He started the very first plan book service in the United States. It was called the Practical Homes. And so building and architecture was always something that was discussed around our dinner table. My father followed in my grandfather's footsteps in, in that uh, business. Uh, so, you know, in joining, uh, joining the university, uh, I enrolled in the Institute of Technology and uh, started on the freshman hockey team at the same time. And because I had gone to a pretty good private school, a little private school, I, the first year was relatively easy for me at the university. Uh, but uh, a year or so later, things caught up with me and in a big way. Um, I had started my first three or four games um, at, at the university uh, for the Gophers. Uh, and then my first major project, architectural project was due. And I was way behind on it. I had to stay up all night for three nights in a row. <laughs> and my performance on Friday evening was uh, less than uh, spectacular, uh, in, encouraging Mariucci to look at me. And whenever he was dissatisfied with me, he always pronounced my name Peterson. And he said, Peterson, take a, take a rest. <laughs> and so, frankly, that, that's when my architectural career began, when Peterson took a rest. And uh, I was able, I, I finished out the year playing, and then I, I left hockey and uh, focused full-time on architecture. Awesome. So that, that's the beginning. Yep. Uh, and the beginning wasn't easy. Uh, I wasn't doing well. I, I was doing badly. And it was only after maybe a couple of semesters when uh, one of the professors, James Staggerbird, sort of took a liking to me and I started to get, get my bearings. And a year or so later, I began working with Leonard Parker, a very fine architect in Minneapolis who had been with Aerosarner for a number of years. And the whole, the, the whole legend uh, the Saren office was inculcated in me, and I, uh, I was a, a passionate uh, participant in that dialogue. And uh, after working with Leonard for a period of time, um, everything changed for me. And uh, the architecture became uh, a passion, uh, and I was uh, successful at what I was doing. In uh, graduating from the University of Minnesota, I worked for a year for Leonard in, in Minneapolis, and then went to MIT, and uh, after MIT, I, uh, I entered the Rome Prize competition. I won the Rome Prize in 1965, and I spent two years in Rome. Uh, on my jury was I.M. Pei. Mm. And uh, so he had, well, while I was in Rome, he uh, asked if I would come back and work for him after I was through. So after I was uh, done with my Rome Prize, uh, and I did. and. Uh, that experience of working with IMP uh, almost exclusively with him and on the National Gallery for most of the time uh, was a, a formative experience for me uh, in the way that uh, uh, I ultimately practiced architecture. Because I am, while he was certainly would have to rank as one of the, the great architects of, of our time, um, he, while well, he set the very clear direction for all the projects, 
Uh, he encouraged people to participate. Uh, and if your ideas were good, uh, they would be accepted. And it was a type of environment where people really wanted to give the best. And they gave the best because uh, he was not uh, dictatorial in his, in his uh, position, but really uh, wanted us to contribute. And that example that he set was for me an example which um, has created the way I work in, in collaboration with my colleagues uh, uh, and I've worked for the last, frankly, last 50 years uh, with the same process. So uh, the one issue though that was different than um, and what I, the way we practice now was that, that the firm was very closely held and the opportunity for vertical growth within the firm uh, was limited. Uh, the, the partnership, Paycock Freed, um, very closely held the, the leadership of the firm. And it was clear that uh, while um, I was you know, greatly uh, frankly, uh, uh, valued uh, in their organization, uh, it would be years before one be, would be able to ascend to the level of partnership. Mm -hmm. So we, I left the firm and I accepted uh, an invitation from Gene Cohn, who was president of Warnicke's office at that time. I accepted an opportunity to be able to go over there and to, frankly, uh, design my own building. And uh, I got that opportunity. And that the first opportunity was a major academic structure at uh, City College in New York. Uh, I had never given a presentation to a client before. And here I was in charge of this uh, rather uh, monumental facility. Mm -hmm. uh, I made my first presentation as I would make a presentation. Uh, presenting a singular scheme, showing, presenting it with enthusiasm and hopefully a certain amount of logic. And it was not a success. It, was, no. a great, it was not a success. I uh, met with a huge amount of resistance. As a matter of fact, the resistance was so great that we were close to losing the job. What was the main and, criticism? What, what did they not like? The main criticism was that they weren't involved. I was showing what them what they ought to have. And uh, that's what I expected that an architect was supposed to do. You, with a client, you, you give them what you, what you think they need. And this was out without having had any consultation with them at all, just meeting a group of 14 people uh, who represented the, the uh, city university and uh, city college and uh, telling them that this is what they ought to have. Mm -hmm. Well, it became very clear to me that I needed to be, find, find another way of working. And so I developed then the process which I've used for 50 years, and I call it the comparative process. I always come to a meeting and I show a series of possibilities. And each of these possibilities is designed not necessarily to be chosen at random, like one is choosing from a Chinese menu, but each of, each of the possibilities is designed to be able to 
uh, elicit response uh, to focus on a certain aspect or approach to, to, to a project. Uh, and it, it has the ability, it has the virtue of taking me through more than my singular initial concept. It has the advantage of being able to make me stretch myself and, and look at things from all angles. But it also has the advantage of bringing my client into a relationship with me whereby they can start to understand what I'm thinking and I can understand what they're thinking by their response. And it was re remarkable. I presented maybe seven different alternatives in the next meeting. And the dynamic was totally different. Uh, they started talking. They started saying what they what was of importance to them. Uh, I started to understand what was important to them. And gradually from a back and forth process, which was, you know, not one where one just simply lets the client do what they want. That's not the purpose of it. The purpose is guiding the client through their thought process and bringing them to a, a solution that is good for, for both sides of the equation, the architect and the client. And uh, that process uh, is one which, as I mentioned before, uh, I initiated at Court Medicine Fox, and everybody in our firm for the last 50 years has used that same, same method of working. And so these will be, you know, some people, even preliminary, will bring up a bunch of different ideas of architecture from maybe their own examples, maybe others. But this is your first initial sketches of concepts different concepts. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Um, I can bring up, is there any example, let's say 33 Wacker Drive, Shanghai uh, World Financial Center, Hudson Yards, any of those where you remember the first couple concepts and then what that meeting brought out from there and how you changed? And it, it doesn't have to be those examples. It could be a different one. Well, uh, let's take Hudson Yards. Hudson Yards is a, a contentious project. It's a, it's a major project. It, uh, uh, is one where uh, the, the process of looking at various points of view uh, was very much part of the, the design process. Um, the, the initial designs that I had done uh, were perhaps from a, a volumetric perspective, uh, more restrained. And, and yet I've always believed that one of the responsibilities of buildings in an urban environment is for buildings to talk with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the possibility for a conversation uh, with a new participant in an environment means that that new participant must find a way of responding to the existing conversation. And so every design that I presented to Stephen Ross, who's the chairman of Related, every design had aspects of a conversation both between the buildings that we were designing and with the buildings and their adjacent context and with the city of New York. Uh, through the process, uh, it became clear that Stephen wanted to have for the identity of these buildings a very 
quote, iconic form. Uh, and so realizing that the initial problem, which was to create extremely efficient office buildings, because this was a remote part of Manhattan, it could not command the high rents in central Manhattan. These buildings had to be extremely competitive. I started with the biology of the tall building, which acknowledges the fact that every 15 floors as it rises, a bank of elevators drops off, mm. which means that the central core of the building, which contains all of the services and the elevators, gets smaller as it rises. Ideally, the dimension of the building in New York State's real estate world, the ideal dimension from core to outside wall is 45 feet. As okay. the building rises and one drops off a bank of elevators, one basically is dropping off then a, a dimension every 15 stories. If one follows that, then the core itself slopes, slopes mm -hmm. backwards. And so the response then of the building enclosure to, to maintain that ideal 45-foot dimension enabled or demanded that the building enclosure also step back. And so as a result, the buildings tended to slope, and, but only on one side. We had two major towers. I put them in a relationship to each other. I faced one slope toward the city and the other slope towards the water in a way where the, building had a, the two buildings had a much more dynamic relationship to each other. And then many other additional gestures were made to specifically relate the buildings within the context. But that whole process was a very long and systematic process, uh, which, uh, which tried to find a way to be able to create buildings that were uniquely positioned in the city uh, and also responding to Mr. Ross's sense of what he wanted to accomplish. Yeah, I'm gonna share my screen just so if people are seeing the recording, they can see what we're talking about here. Um, so these are the buildings and, and the 40, the, the kind of tapering to those different angles. Um, to get into the nuts and, and, and bolts of it, there they are. Uh, great buildings, beautiful buildings. Did you have different concepts for this and and here's why i'm getting to because you know i practice architecture on on a very smaller scale and i get attached to some concepts that i feel like would be the right fit um and if i feel like they're going to be the right fit i want to push for them um but sometimes that doesn't always uh come through and especially if you're doing multiple concepts you might spread yourself thin on this one concept so for this, for Hudson Yards, did you kind of narrow in on this concept and just have iterations of this one idea? Or did you have totally different ideas that, you know, you presented and they're like, no, let's not go that way. Let's, let's keep with this idea. You know, this, 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 uh, this concept of, of the buildings following the, the tapering of the core uh, came about relatively late in the design process, working with related uh, and so as a result, once it emerged, everybody immediately recognized the virtue of it, both from the point of view of its leasability, 
the efficiency with which it used space and the, the, the dramatic gesture that it made to the skyline. And uh, the combination of those two things sort of fit perfectly with the, the objectives of the related company and Mr. Ross's objectives. And so this is, and it also obviously was, I was, I was enthusiastic about it as well. But one tends to discover one's enthusiasm over a period of time. It, it, yes, one's initial idea uh, is, is always tempting and one, but <laughs> for example, with my own private house, yep. uh, I, I went through maybe 30 designs over a 10 year period, working on it on weekends almost as a hobby. And it, 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 it did just the constant the constant uh, measuring of possibilities, the, the constant evolution of possibilities finally led me after a long, long time to something that seemed to solve the particular problem of that site. It's, does it, it's not a generic solution, it's a solution to a particular sighting situation. Yeah. Um, you you talk about how the firm doesn't have a sort of strong, you know, manifesto or credo of, of ideas that you have to be this way. Some of the iconic architects over the ages had distinct where you could tell that this is a Frank Lloyd Wright building. Obviously he had phases, Louis Kahn, you know, we could go on. Um, is that true with, uh, you know, I know certain in KPF buildings. Um, I don't know if I could spot all of them. Um, but how do you then, how do you think about that when you're leading a, a firm, um, and which way you should go in and whether you should sort of cultivate a style or not? Well, uh, uh, let me, this issue of a manifesto, <laughs> uh, you know, is, is somewhat, uh, an ambiguous one. We very clearly have a specific intention with what we do. First of all, the focus of our practice has been largely on the high-rise commercial speculative office building. Now, why did we choose the high-rise speculative commercial office building? Not from an artistic perspective, a great opportunity, right? There, there are huge limitations built into this particular building type. Well, the reason we chose it was that our cities are dominated by this building type. Mm -hmm. From our perspective, no architectural problem is more immediate than finding ways of addressing the high-rise commercial speculative office building such that it becomes a social participant within the city. And cities are made up of all of these buildings, none of which have had any idea about how they relate to each other or to the city itself. And our manifesto, let's call it a manifesto, our manifesto is to find a way of creating architecture such that it is specific to its place, such that it enables the place to start to communicate in a social way where buildings start to talk with each other. And every place is different building in Chicago is very different from the building in Shanghai. Uh, and the objective of, of our philosophy is to be able to uniquely tailor the building specifically to the character of the place 
to the culture of the place uh, and to the demands of the program that they represent. Yeah, uh, I think one of uh, in the books, in the book that you have, you talked about buildings uh, are human participants in the city. And it, it just got my brain twirling a little bit because how communi- humans communicate is not just through, uh, you know, words, it's, it's gestures, which your buildings does, but it's clothing too. So I wondered, and, and clothing can say a lot, like right now, I mean, it's just a regular button up shirt, but our firm has a, has a job site and I was out there. And one thing that's about, that fancy clothing says is I can't pick up that dirty beam or equipment because I'm going to get this hundred dollar shirt you know, dirty where uh, a worker shirt could actually be that much, but it's made to get dirty too. So um, I'm sure you had this thought and explored this, the skin, the facade, not only on a performance level, but a cultural and, and what it's saying, you know, am I an office building where we get work done? Are we, you know, um, there's different sorts of languages that you can, you can say with a building skin. Well, yes, and, and this this really starts to bring one to um, sort of the, the evolution of architecture. I mean, there was a time when uh, buildings uh, were, and this wasn't that long ago, maybe 80, 100 years ago, there were buildings basically talked in a common language. And that common language is roughly derived from, from classical from classical beginnings, uh, where buildings respected and responded to the boundaries that were placed upon them. In other words, a building stands on the earth, right? As a human being stands on the earth. A building as it rises to the sky terminates against the sky. So the, the manner in which a building rests on the earth, the manner in which it terminates against the sky, were very clearly defined in the classical language with a variety of of ways, but these boundaries were respected and and celebrated as were the lateral boundaries on the sides of a building uh, and the the enclosure and the boundary around a window of a building. All of these were taken as opportunities for expression. Now, altogether, buildings tended to dress in a certain way. Urban buildings tended to dress in a certain way. And if you went to a if, if you went to a major occasion, you probably all dressed in the same way as well. One wore a you know, black tie or one wore appropriate dress for the nature of the occasion. Well, so much of that has changed, right? I mean, the the common commonality of dress, the commonality of of of, 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 of a sort of a cultural means of communication has very been much has been very much broken down, and so the opportunity to to get buildings to dress in a way that they in fact can communicate with their participants adjacent participants is very limited. Uh, the fact that you talk about a building dressing as if it were an office building that's a very interesting thing. I mean, an office building uh, probably should have the ex- expectation of, of looking a certain way, although there are many ways an, art, an office building can dress and still be uh, uh, appropriately attired, so to speak. 
but the actual enclosure of, of office buildings is a, is a subject that has you know, sort of dominated our thought process for 40 years as to how a building in fact is enclosed, the efficiency with which it's enclosed, the uh, ability of the building to enable a, a, a maximum amount of light to penetrate into the interior space, uh, which has become sort of a demand in the real estate market now. Mm -hmm. the, the demand of buildings to uh, illuminate as much of the interior space as possible is something that is very much part of our problem. It's very much part of what we have to address. And so buildings that are predominantly glass uh, have become predominantly glass because they produce interiors, which tend to be much more um, from the point of view of the occupant's experience, they tend to be a much more enjoyable experience. Uh, so it, yeah. it's become a sort of a universal standard. A technical question before we get back to a philosophical question. Um, since I don't design skyscrapers, I'm always curious because a, a lot of the tall skyscrapers have a majority glass and uh, on regular buildings, office buildings, commercial buildings, um, the R values and the uh, for the walls, you know, R19, R20, I don't know how a glass meets energy code. Is it different or for uh, a a tall skyscraper building or do you offset it some other way or am I not thinking about it right? Um, am I just assuming that um, the glass for some reason doesn't meet these insulation values? I think the glass technology over the years has evolved tremendously uh, in, largely in respect to the issues of, of the sustainability of the, of, of the environment that it produces. So the manner in which uh, the, the buildings, which appear to be all glass, uh, uh, performed in the 1950s uh, is dramatically different from the, the manner in which the buildings, which are all glass, performed in, the, in 2021. Um, we have just uh, introduced uh, a reclad of a building on Fifth Avenue between 52nd and 53rd Street. In, 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 Manhattan, uh, in Manhattan, yep. where one sheet of glass going from column line to column line, approximately 20 feet, uh, is without interruption, without interruption. And the use of, uh, I'm not, I haven't been in the office for six years since uh, my wife passed away two years ago, but I won't go into that, but nevertheless, the technology that has evolved in the last six years uh, in, in, in the use of glass uh, has been remarkable. The amount of triple glazing being used, the, uh, the, the coatings themselves that, that the, the, the glass now in, uh, introduces, all of these have evolved to, to, to respond in, in very positive ways. And are you talking um, north of Grand Central Station? I used to live in New York and that was like one of my favorite areas. <laughs> This is this is on Fifth Avenue. It's uh, it's is north of Grand Central on Fifth Avenue. Yes. Yeah. I, it's it. It is halfway up, and I saw it yesterday, and I was really excited about it because it, it's sort of the essence of minimalism, and and the wall is extraordinarily flat and and elegant in itself, 
and, and meets all of the criteria of, of sustainability that have been has evolved, you know, in, in, in recent years. Yep. I was meeting a friend there for a key when I was just moving in. Um, and they walked out and I was like, you wouldn't believe it. That's a famous building. That's a famous building. That's by that person. That's by that person. And they're like, that's great. Here's your key. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'll walk away now, but I'm really excited. Um, one of the most exciting things at, at college at NDSU was fourth year. If I'm remembering it right, one semester was get dedicated to skyscrapers. You studied them. You did a skyscraper project. You, we, we flew to San Francisco where we had it. Um, and I think they're fl flying to different cities now, but it always used to be in San Francisco. And one thing I remember them harping on, or maybe I just took in a lot was this, how a building meets the street and, and how that works. And, um, to be very cognizant of that when designing skyscrapers, um, what sort of approaches or new ideas or cool ideas have you guys kind of implemented on that kind of ground level scale? Um, because there's everything from the coolest lobby you've ever seen to in, um, I want to say Toronto, I might be getting this wrong, where they'll put townhomes and kind of hide, you know, that it's a skyscraper um, so that you don't even kind of know that it's a skyscraper. What, what have you guys kind of explored there? Well, we've explored a lot. I mean, over the last 50 years, uh, issues of this type have been uh, fundamental to our, our development of strategies for the tall building. Um, and uh, first of all, let me say, <laughs> let me say, I, I did not enter architecture, nor did we as a firm enter architecture to do skyscrapers. I mean, <laughs> The skyscrapers evolved as, as, as frankly, 333 Wacker Drive in Chicago was a hugely successful sky, skyscraper. It's not that tall, but it, it, uh, it was a hugely successful building from a, a variety of uh, points of view. And so as a result, the building type came to us. And the fact that we were getting it so consistently made it imperative that we start to think about it from a, a systematic point of view in terms of the development of strategies for the tall building. So, you know, over my career, <laughs> I do develop strategies for what I, what I call a building of, of, of one part, which is pretty much that, that of the, the Shanghai World Financial Center, or a building of two parts, uh, which is maybe our, our first Hawaiian bank in, in Honolulu, or a building of three parts, uh, which is uh, our, our DG Bank in Frankfurt. Uh, these were strategies to be able to deal with the context, the three-part building. The first part is the expression of the core of the building as a skewer that binds together two other parts, both of which have two very different geometries addressing the nature of the context adjacent to it. In this particular case, there was a commercial context on one side in a residential context and on the other side. And so the, the two forms, one curvilinear and fluid, and another, mm. another one rather static, were fused together. Wh the curved side is which is residential or commercial? No, it's commercial. It faces that has a big fan on the top of it and gestures out towards the, gestures out towards the city uh, to the commercial core of, of, of Frankfurt. But 
the point I'm getting at is that uh, you know the, the, being the, the tall building, every building type presents unique problems. And th this particular building, 333 Wacker Drive, is on the bend of the Chicago River. So the intention with that curved facade was to follow the, the bend of the river, enable that building to represent, no matter where you stood in Chicago looking at that building, you'd recognize the fact that the, the river and the geometry of the river through the city was then something that was projected into the skyline and became a participant, frankly, uh, in the skyline itself. So uh, you know, and that, and that, that building is totally unique to its place. We've never done another building like it because mm -hmm. it, it, there was not the justification for it. Gotcha. One of my other favorite buildings of yours is the Shanghai World Financial Center. And it's a favorite because there's been a couple buildings when I was young that stuck out as this is the future of buildings. And the first one was Norman Foster's HSBC. When I saw that, you know, that was actually built before I was born, but you know, I didn't know that. And I said, holy cow, this is, this is the future of architecture. And then the Shanghai World Financial Center came and I don't know when I discovered it, but I go, oh, wait, wait, this is the new future. Um, and it is a, a uh, beautiful building. Um, so anything you want to talk about that building, I would be happy <laughs> to listen to. Well, let me, let me just say something here that I think is important. Um, you know, we are deep within a period where architecture needs to, frankly, do more with less. In other words, uh, architecture needs to be highly efficient. And one of the, one of the things that uh, working in commercial speculative office buildings, uh, one of the things that it initially affords is that developers want to build efficient buildings. Mm -hmm. And when you build a, an efficient building, it largely translates into the amount of surface area that it takes to enclose a square foot of area or a certain amount of usable area. And the less square footage of the surface enclosure in relationship to the area enclosed, the more efficient the building becomes. The Shanghai World Financial Center um, is a highly efficient building. Uh, it has two programmatic types. It has at its base, uh, not including the retail functions at the bottom of the building, but it, it, as it rises above the lowest portions of the building, it is largely office space. And that office space is, is based on a square. Uh, above the, the office space, the building becomes a hotel. And the ideal floor plate for the hotel is not a square, but basically an oblong figure. So to reconcile those two together, uh, basically I took a square prism, extended it from the earth, and then carved into it with what were almost like great cosmic carving arcs. And that's what generated the form. Now, symbolically, 
the ancient Chinese in their burial mounds would always leave a, with two artifacts. One would be a square prism. These were about 16 inches high, a square prism with horizontal striations and it was of dark stone. And the other was a circular disc of light stone with a circular aperture in the center of it. So the relationship between the square prism and the circular disc were thought of as being a relationship between earth and sky. Mm -hmm. This building tries to do exactly the same thing. The relationship between Earth as it roots itself into the Earth, the whole base of it is, is stone. I don't know if the, the image you have don't show that, but the whole base of it is, is stone. And as it comes up against the sky, it creates an aperture, which from a structural perspective allows the air to pass through it and relieves the overturning moment of the wind pressure on the building. Initially, that aperture was a circle. And I presented mm. it. I presented it in, 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 in Shanghai. And I presented it to seven professors of architecture, each of whom had one half hour to respond to my 10-minute presentation. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the first professor said, well, perhaps this building is acceptable, but it certainly isn't desirable. <laughs> no one ever told us why until a month later in a Hong Kong paper, it, it had a, a byline saying that a Japanese developer walks into Shanghai with the flag held high. The circle was not interpreted, oh. uh, interpreted by them as being a Moongate, which I talked about it being, it was interpreted as a Japanese flag. Yeah. And so as a result, uh, this form emerged from, uh, from that uh, as a way of dealing with that particular cultural issue, which was a very serious one and uh, it needed to be respected. And I, in my naivete, uh, did not fully understand. I, 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 I always thought of the Chinese Moongate which is something that is, you know, connected to the landscape. But placing it in the sky where, in fact, could have the moon seen directly behind it <laughs> seemed to me to be logical, but uh, sometimes logic isn't always the, uh, the deciding factor. Yeah, I bet you a bunch of architects have run into that. They are thinking something totally different. They present it to people and they go, why would you do this horrendous thing? And you're like... Oh, I didn't realize that that's what it meant to you. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Uh, question about, uh, not about skyscrapers. The USA Today headquarters, um, I think their parent company is. Good yeah. Yep. Uh, just a quick question. One of my other, I have a lot of favorite buildings, but it is the Crystal Cathedral in Garden Grove, California. Um and that building reminds me of the Crystal Cathedral. Did you take anything from that or was it just coincidental or am I just seeing connections where there's not? Well, the Crystal Cathedral, I believe is Philip Johnson's building, right? Yep. The, the, the singular space, uh, you know, that had, a, I believe a triangulated structure behind it. It, it was a single volume of the, the, in the case of Gannett, 
these two buildings acted as, as two hands, frankly, that sort of cupped a, a, a landscape in between them. Gannett was one of, one, one of the, the parent companies, USA Today was the other. And so the creation of two entities in, in a dialogue with each other, creating a common space between them and, and one that was shared uh, became the, the driving force of the building. And that particular space was oriented to the south light uh, and the landscape in it is magnificent. Uh, that building won the National AIA Design Award, I forget what, which year. Uh, it, it, it's in, it, clad in a, a glass structure, but has a series of projecting fins, glass fins, which actually allow prismatic colorations to penetrate into the inner landscape uh, behind the building. So this, there it is there. It's, it's, it's a building that, that tries to create this very strong sense of community, which all my corporate headquarters, lower rise corporate headquarters do. This is one of my favorite buildings of, of my, Corporate, of the corporate headquarters type, uh, this building achieves more in terms of the intention, which is to make a community uh, than uh, perhaps any other that I've done. Those two vertical elements are the elevator towers. And so as a result, the circulation is on the, on the perimeter of the interior surface. So everybody sees all the movement that's going on and all of this, the lower elements uh, or function as gathering spaces for the corporation. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful building, and maybe that's the main correlation is that they're both beautiful buildings. They have some nice subtle angles to them and glass. Um, if I can, after we wrap this up, I'll record it for anyone that wants to listen. Um, since I have one of the greatest skyscraper architects ever, I was going to show him some stuff and and, and talk about it. Um, but before we go to that. Is there anything else you want to cover? Anything you want to leave our audience with? Any? Are you a social media guy? Uh, you want them to, to follow anything? You know, I, uh, I, I really do not uh, think of myself as a skyscraper architect. I think of myself as someone that responds, does an architecture that's in response to specific conditions. And so... I'd like to talk about my chairs. Yeah, yeah. I, I, because they, they they say probably more about me than, than my tall buildings do. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you showed this one because I love this one. But show my show my steel loop to loop chair if you have it. Okay. Well, yeah, you talk about it. I will try to find it. Okay. Well, I tried to. I wanted to find a way of making a chair as simply as possible that would perform all of the functions that were necessary to support the human body and to support the human body in a way that made the chair comfortable. This was not intended to be a piece of sculpture. This was intended to be a, yeah, these are, those, these are earlier versions of it. If you can get it from my book. Uh, I don't think, I, I'll look. Go, go go back to go back you know, that, that purple one in the bottom. That's a chaise lounge. Yeah, that one there. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, the intention here was to be able to um, structurally 
be so pure, whereas the entire frame of the building, which is uh, of, the, of the chair, uh, which is of a five-eighths inch uh, tubular steel, uh, that frame is totally in compression, where the fabric, which is a polyester knit, is totally in tension. And the geometry of that fabric is totally determined by the stretching of the, the frame uh, and the shapes of the, of the geometry of that fabric then, uh, which initially starts out as, as sort of a trapezoidal piece. Uh, when it's pulled on, it starts to create uh, the energy of, of the form. And as a result of being pulled on, it also uh, achieves two layers, which enables a more ray pattern to be able to, to, to evolve as, as one looks through the two layers. But it is a knit and not a, an elastic fabric. If it were elastic fabric, it would sink further for a heavy person than it does for a light person. Mm. With a knit, it goes down exactly the same dimension whether one is 100 pounds or one is, uh, one is 200 pounds. For me, uh, this, is, this represents sort of an ideal where so much can be accomplished with so little uh, and with the huge efficiency. Uh, if I were able to be able to create architecture, <laughs> which had the, the, the clarity and the, the, the simplicity of this, I would... <laughs> I'd still, I'd still be practicing architecture, but now I'm, I'm really uh, uh, doing mostly chairs. Yeah, um, I absolutely understand that sentiment. And it's, you know, with buildings, it's when you reduce it to this, you know, as beautiful as this, it, it always comes to, well, you need, you know, this material is great for this. So let's add in this material, this material is great for this. And all of a sudden you have a bunch of materials and you're trying to make them all blend and simple and all that. So it is quite the struggle, um, 100%. This, this process took seven years to, to evolve from some of the earlier ones, which you can see on the left-hand side, uh, and to the, that, that chaise lounge, which is, represents, uh, yeah, that, 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 that's an earlier one. But mm -hmm. all of it, uh, <laughs> it was quite a struggle. Yeah. Uh, they're beautiful. Um, Anything else you want to leave our audience with? Well, yes, I do. Uh, you know, our Gene Cohn, uh, Shelley Fox, and I started the firm in 1976. And uh, we started it with the intention of creating a firm that would enable those that had sufficient talent, sufficient determination, and desire. Uh, to, to make their entire architectural career within our firm. Much of that meant that uh, the, the firm had to allow for, for growth. Uh, I have not been practicing actively in the firm for six years, uh, but I, we have now a series of partners within the firm, all of whom have been with the firm, frankly, their entire their entire career, or almost all of them. Uh, and they, while they practice in exactly the same way with a comparative method with the intention of trying to 
find unique examples of connecting to the city, they obviously do it in their own way. And that's what we want. Uh, they do it in ways which fulfill them as, as individuals. Uh, and so the, the, the firm now, uh, we have 750 people working in nine locations around the world. Um, size is, 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 is not indicative of anything other than some level of success. But the degree to which those people are producing now buildings of extraordinary, uh, I think, extraordinary uh, abilities and, and, and results uh, is, is astounds me. And uh, one of the things that we've done, uh, which is a, a, a product of, of our leadership, Jamie Von Klemper is our president, uh, and uh, he has initiated a program where we have a town hall meeting every Friday all for all nine offices. And in the, during the last 18 months, the office has frankly never been closer than it, than it is right now because everybody has a chance to communicate with each other across the globe. And it's, it's sort of a remarkable thing. I think so too. And I think that's something we try to dive into, but we just got caught in other subjects is um, business development is, is huge because designing buildings is amazing, but designing buildings and being stable and being able to have a family and doing what you love is a huge portion um, of your life. And, and how a firm is ran kind of can dictate the quality of that. Um, so what were there any major challenges or learning lessons when you were growing where you stumbled and then figured, hey, we got to do this slightly different? Or was it just a natural, slow progression of getting better? Um, anything to kind of help out people on that kind of growth or, or that are trying to create a firm um, that has a great culture while doing great work? Well, um, you know, the work that we've done speaks for itself. Uh, but uh, we've been successful primarily because uh, we uh, are very respectful of our clients and we build extremely well. Our buildings are, one may differ, you know, with the conceptual aspects of our buildings, but our buildings are really built well. And learning to really build well and building a team that enabled us to really build well took time. We didn't build so well in the beginning. And we gradually got better and better and better. And now it is, is it, you know, the culture of building well uh, is, is, the, is the, fun, the, the fundamental basis of our, our practice. And if one builds well, and if one makes the experience something that is positive for both the architect and the client, uh, new business takes care of itself. Yeah. You know, that, what is that, the, the word gets out that these people are good to work with. And uh, we, the, frankly, we are, we are we're damn good to work with and we're fun to work with. And uh, we, we produce a product that has everybody's interest in mind. Yep. What does it mean to build well? Well, you know, a contractor can only build as well as an architect designs. You can't, if you don't put the materials together in a way which enables them to endure through time, which enables them to be elegant as they relate to each other, the connections that one creates with the material, if you don't do that, you're not building well. 
And that, and it, it is just a question of the building standing up. It's a question of, of the way the building is put together. It, has everything been considered? Has every piece been thought of? And nothing, nothing escapes our attention. And, uh, you know, the great architects of Aerosarnan, for example, uh, you know, he built well, he built incredibly well. And he built challenging forms, and he, he still built them, built them well. And uh, we, we like to feel we're, we're, we're following that aspiration and, and in some respects uh, represented. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so is it almost as simple as what you just explained? Put together a nice team, a gr- you know, great team, build well, think about the client as having a great relationship and the rest takes care of itself? Um, or is there something where you feel, uh, hey, don't, if people miss out on this way of doing business, uh, um, they're going to fail, you know, a- anything like that? I, I, I overly simplified it. Yes, building well, yes, designing well, doing buildings that people like, is, is, is that's a major component. But you have to have a catalyst within the, the within the group, and in our group, Gene Cohn was was the catalyst. He's the, he's the one that really got things going. Presently, it's Jamie Van Klemper and his team that, that they you know never being satisfied with the the present situation <laughs> and and always looking for opportunities. You know, requires a particularly intense and a particularly sort of forward-looking mind. And sometimes those of us who are working on the builders, uh, you know, don't possess all those qualities. I could never have survived without Gene Cohn. I could never have survived without, my, uh, without having that, that sort of this, a sense of, of looking past the, the position we're in. Uh, I was too mired in the present. And uh, so that, that you have to have that di- dialogue within an office, awesome. I mean, within, an, within any organization. It's not just yes. architecture. Agree, agree. Uh, the book is Gesture and Response by, it's listed on Amazon, William Pedersen. Um, but if you see him in the street, call him Bill. Bill, <laughs> thank you thank for you. your t- time and I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah.